We are just at the beginning of our summer sermon series on the book of First Peter, a book that we chose in part because it gives us a Christian perspective on suffering that will be helpful for us after a year of pandemic, a year of attention to racial injustice, and a year of difficult losses. And we also selected this book because for all of its talk about suffering, for all of the challenging passages that are within it, a central concern of this book is hope. And hope is something that we could use a lot more of these days. If you're joining us for the first time this week, if you missed last week's message, or perhaps you've forgotten it already and would appreciate a refresher, we began by considering the ways that Peter addresses this letter. A letter to exiles, and not just exiles, but to Christian exiles. Exiles not of a physical land, but of the kingdom of God. We considered how we too are exiles of God's kingdom. Though as Christians in the West, we may be exiles of our, of our own design and choosing, rather than exiles just because we're Christian in the world. I say this because we seem to have become quite settled in the nations that we now call home, rather than unsettled by all the ways they are not like God's kingdom. Indeed, at times the church seems to have exacerbated these differences. Then we talked about our identity, that we should see ourselves not only as being exiles of that kingdom, but as chosen, sanctified, obedient, and marked people. Then we considered how as such people, we have been given a living hope, who is Jesus Christ himself. Hope made possible by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This hope in Christ makes it possible to love him, though we did not witness his earthly ministry, and to believe in him, though we can't see him now. And this produces joy within us as we receive the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So that's how this book began. That's what we talked about last week. And maybe you're not feeling that joy today. Maybe you haven't felt much joy in a long time. I know that many of us have been going through times of deep turmoil, of grief, even of paralyzing uncertainty. How many of our prayers in these last months have been that question, how long, O Lord? Or, if it be your will. And I don't know when, but... We have asked, when will this lockdown actually end? We have asked, when will safety and security be known by all people? We have asked, when will I see my family in another city, in another country again? We have asked, when will I have my friends over for dinner or go on that trip or be able to find gainful employment? There is so much that we just don't know. And grief and anxiety come to us as we find ourselves face to face with our own powerlessness. We are realizing once more that we cannot answer these questions. We cannot solve even the problems that seem so simple. We cannot know when all that is fundamentally wrong in this world and in our lives will finally 
and really change. But Peter seems to be suggesting how privileged we actually are to know what we do know. He writes, concerning that salvation, which is the end result of your faith, the prophets spoke of it. They searched for it carefully, searching for the time and the circumstances of it. But what was revealed to them was that they were not serving themselves, but you. What was revealed to the prophets was that it was not for them to know. But we know. They couldn't answer when the Messiah would come or what his ministry would look like exactly. They must have wondered how could all these prophecies come together? How could a single king reign on David's throne forever? Mysteries for them, now seen clearly by us. For all that we don't know, and there is lots that we don't know, for that litany of questions that we each bring regularly to God in prayer, there is yet a prayer that we have no need to pray, but that generations of God's people prayed for consistently. There are answers which we know that even angels longed to look into, but could not. We come to our faith from a very privileged place. This is the same faith that was shared by those prophets, shared by those saints of old, but they did not know in whom they put their faith, though his spirit pointed them in it. We have no need to ask by what means God might reconcile a dying world to himself. We have heard of the means. We have experienced it in our lives. We need not long to know how God's Messiah might appear. Will he be a warrior, a prophet, a king? No, we have heard of the lamb who was slain yet lives. The only thing they knew was that they could not know. They were serving you. You who could take their words and use them to believe in the gospel of Christ. Preached to you by the Spirit. Ultimately, we know the story now. We even know the part of the story that we have not seen yet. Christ will return. And when he does, he will fully realize that kingdom which was inaugurated by his obedient life, his atoning death, his resurrection and ascension. And when he comes and when he fulfills that kingdom, we will enter into that promised land from which we are now exiles. So Peter reminds us of the tremendous benefit that we have that others have not known. But to what end? What, what is the point of knowing if we still don't know so much? What is the point of the extra knowledge we have if we still suffer so much? He continues, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Now, I have to pause here because this is great. The Greek here is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. If we were put, to put that into a phrase of more contemporary English, he might be saying something like, get ready to roll up the, 
Get ready to roll up your brain sleeves. Brain sleeves, loins of your mind. Peter is warning us that what he's about to say is going to take some serious attention, some real work. It's going to require our focus. So what is this work that he wants us to be prepared for, to be level-headed as we embark upon it? Well, the verse continues, to set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Church, we are being told that it is work to set our hope. I said last week that the hope First Peter calls us to is not a trite, feel-good, nonsense hope. And I think that we're beginning to see that in how Peter addresses us about hope here. Get ready to work at it. Gird up the loins of your mind. Roll up your brain sleeves. With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. It is work to set our hope because our hopes wander. They drift. They're moved by the currents of our lives. They're drawn off course by every shifting and changing wind. This is the disposition of our hearts. We who are exiles and wanderers in this world are now also easily distracted by the lures and temptations we see around us. We're diverted by that which promises a quicker fix or some instant gratification or the approval of our peers. Hopes shift easily for so many. But don't let it be so for you encourages Peter. You, unlike many, unlike even people who longed to know, you do know what your hope ought to be. So set it. Row against the currents. Tack your sails into the wind. Set your hope for yourself and set it on this. Set your hope fully on the return of Christ the Jesus who you know, the Jesus that we follow together as a church. Set your hope on him who will return and return with that grace with which he lavishes the whole world. Set your hope intentionally. Do it painstakingly. Every day with an alert mind, set your hope on that grace, reminding yourself that it is that grace which will bring you home to your father which will name you a good and faithful servant of your Lord, which will offer you the deepest communion with the Holy Spirit. It is certainly work to set our hopes. But Peter isn't telling us to do the work of deluding ourselves. He isn't saying to placate yourself with a fairy tale world. We're not being tricked. We're not supposed to twist our minds into mental knots to try to pull one over on ourselves. Don't get drunk on the euphoria of some dreamed up hope, completely unattached from the world that we know. Peter says we must be sober-minded. We should be well-balanced. We must hold on to a realistic and grounded hope. The living hope, which is Christ, is just this sort of realistic hope. It's a realistic hope because it acknowledges suffering. It acknowledges 
pain. It comes to us from one who even submitted himself to death. Surely, if we were being duped, there could be a more attractive con than the way of the cross, which leads to life. This is a hope that we hold on to, not only because it was preached to us, but also because we see it coming into focus by the way that we live our lives. How our obedient lives produce within us the very grace that we are longing for. And how conforming ourselves to Christ rather than the evil desires we once had actually moves us by the spirit of Christ to better love and better serve others around us. God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. No longer foreigners, not exiles, but citizens. We have seen for ourselves how this hope disarms evil at every turn. Not that evil doesn't exist, not that it will not yet lash out, but that Jesus in his grace offers to us resurrection, which makes death a joke. He offers to us joy, which makes even present sorrows bearable until that day when there will be sorrow no more. Jesus, who calls you, is holy. So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What's the connection here between our hope in grace and this call to holiness? Why this transition? What is Peter doing here? How do these things fit together? What I believe we're meant to connect here is that, in fact, it is the hope of grace which spurs us on to holiness. The grace which Jesus offers to us, the forgiveness and mercy we see and we know in him, eggs us on in the race that he calls us to run. Because if not for grace, why keep trying? If we had to run the race perfectly, we shouldn't keep running it. We've already failed. So many times we've failed. What is to keep us from throwing in the towel, giving up on the living hope which continually proves to be too much work to set as our course, rooted in this life of difficulty which ought to be too much for any person to bear, yet was born for us? What is commended to us as an invitation to be holy when everything else about us is not holy? And so it is that grace is what prevents us from giving up. That when we sin, we discover that our hope is anchored in something true because grace abounds. Grace picks us up again, inviting us into resurrection life once more even though death tried to make that fall our grave. Still, we find that we are raised with Christ again. It is the very hope of Jesus' grace at the end which allows us to persevere in the work of God, even when we know that we have already come up short. It is our living hope in Jesus that leads us to obedience.
In him we know most fully the love of God for each of us. We understand God's deep desire for our full flourishing because we have seen the lengths that God will go to, not sparing his own son that we might be saved. And having been so caught up in God's love, we also trust God's words that we might, that we might be obedient to them. And we obey God's commands that we might be holy. And all the while we know that when we become more citizen of this world than exile living within it, when our hopes wander and our hearts stray, we are loved enough to be welcomed home again. Never orphaned, never abandoned, but always lovingly chosen and promised abundant grace. Then, as the one who has called us is holy, so we strive to be holy in all that we do. Friends, gird up the loins of your minds. Roll up your brain sleeves and actively set your hope on this grace, which is promised to you in Christ, that truly we might be holy even as he is holy. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to invite you to a time of reflection and prayer. And so the first invitation is to pray, to ask God for help in being grateful for the revelation of the gospel to us, to be grateful even on days when we struggle with all that we do not yet know. And then secondly, a question for continued prayer or journaling or conversation. What are some practical ways that you can work on setting your hope in grace and in Jesus' coming? So we'll give you a couple of minutes to begin those reflections now. <laughs> 